0: Jesus, we thank You. Thank You so much. We've heard so much of Your faithfulness today. Our hearts are undone by Your goodness, Lord. As Jesus, we do bow our hearts and knees before You in adoration and thanksgiving and submission and surrender to You today. Lord, we want to submit your, ourselves under Your holy word today as you come and speak to us through your servant that you have brought to bring your word to us today. Lord, come and speak now. We receive, Lord, from your hand, your word, your life, your truth. Come and impart to us that which will bring transformation to our lives today. And Lord, we will give you the honor and praise and glory. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, Amen. 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 We are just so honored this morning to welcome Mark Durkin to the pulpit today. Mark has been and his family. uh, Carolyn and Hannah have been a part of our congregation for the last two and a half years, and they've been in our life group just about that whole time, and we've gotten to know and appreciate and love Mark so much, and uh, know that God has a a call on his life and uh, he's a graduate of North Central uh, Bible College and uh, has just a heart to communicate the word of the Lord. And uh, this morning, you know, we're in the midst of this uh, series called Daring Do, which we began a couple weeks ago. And uh, when I knew what the topic would be this morning, which was about Hannah, and I said, I know who would be able to bring the word for us today. So, would you join me in welcoming Mark Durkin?
1: I'll just kind of start by just sharing a little bit about what's been going on in my life for uh, the last year. Um, Little did I know, 12 months ago, that God was preparing my heart to preach on the life of Hannah. And the life of Hannah is a very heavy topic It's a heavy life. We see the journey of a woman who at many times looked to be crushed over and over again, but God had a plan that was so beyond what she could even fathom, what she could even imagine. And over the course of the last 10 years, I've received the call of the Lord to preach and teach. He gave me scripture from Isaiah 61, of course, which speaks of Jesus being the one who was coming to proclaim liberty to the captives. I knew that was the call that God had upon my life, but I had no idea that it was going to take me in the 50,000 different directions that it's taken me in that I never once ever considered. In fact, I'm reminded of what uh, Pastor had mentioned during the first part of the series on the life of Abraham, that as he took a step of faith not willing to settle and not really knowing the land that God was bringing him into, it was this, this corner, that corner, over here, times of doubt, times of lying. It was a messy walk. It was a messy commute, but God ultimately is bigger than our mess, amen? He gets us further along into the place of destiny that he has for us, so we don't have to be afraid of the mess that comes along in the road in this journey. Then last week, we took a look at the life of Gideon, and Gideon was receiving a proclamation from the Lord that was... You are a mighty warrior of God. And so he struggled. There was this tension to walk in his God-given identity. And we learned the importance of needing to understand what that identity is in Christ if we're to walk forth and accomplish the dreams that God has for us. Today, we turn our attention to the life of Hannah. And there are several factors and keys that are in play here that are pressing upon her life that also is working to destroy the God-given dream that she had received. Of course, again, last week, again, do we know what our identity is? Do we walk in it? When we understand our identity I mean to understand the dreams that God has for us, there are forces that are working to destroy that. So I want to start today in 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we're going to go through verses 1 through 20 now. Over the next 45 minutes or so, we're going to go through a lot of Scripture. A lot of them are going to be up on this board here, but we're also going to be looking at a lot of scriptures that aren't there, so I'll have you turn in your Bibles to them. So have those handy, and if you don't have a copy, there'll be a Bible in front of you on the back of the seat that is there. There, we've got our word. Very good. So here we go. We're going to start for the first six to seven verses of 1 Samuel 1. There was a certain man from Ramiatham, a Zephite, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohim, the son of Elihu, son of Tohu, the son of Zuth in Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. Now, what's really important to understand here is that there's a two-headed monster that is coming against Hannah. There is the provoking aspect, and there's the irritating aspect. And to provoke in the Hebrew means to make angry. It's to incense. So this work that's going on from this rival is to change the countenance of Hannah's heart. To get her offended and to incense her. But there's a purpose to provoke. The purpose of provoking, then, is to bring the ultimate goal of irritation. And the word irritate there means to make thunder. It's to make storm. It's to bring agitation and distortion that is rooted in fear. To get her to see things from a place of fear. So my question to you this morning is this. How does your rival provoke you? How does he provoke you? And it doesn't have to just be Satan. We'll get into that later. But how does he provoke you? What storm, what thunder, what fear is he trying to build in your heart today? Does your rival whisper things in your spirit, in your head, such as God has forgotten you? You've been shelved for the last five years, collecting dust. Therefore, you might as well go back to the dust. Does he say to you, and this is the one he works on me with, and I'm sure you can relate, well, well, well. Look at how God is fulfilling the dreams he's given you through the people that are around you. You're the only one not walking in it. It's being manifest in all the people. And that's actually a test, too, to see if we'll still walk in the joy of the Lord. Okay? Satan's chief goal, our rival, is to destroy our faith in God. That's all he wants to do. And what he'll do is, is he'll take those times when the womb is closed to make his move. What I mean by that Not going to have your way, Satan. <laughs> what he means by that is that when you and I get born again, when we give our lives to Jesus Christ, when we surrender our lives to Him to follow Him, God impregnates us with good things, godly desires, dreams. He's got visions for us, things that He wants us to walk out in the kingdom. But what happens is, is that the Satan will distort. He'll bring fear when the Lord sovereignly closes that womb. And he'll use the argument that God has no plan for you. But God is at work. There is a plan and a purpose for the closing of that womb. It's to protect the dreams that he's given us. It's to protect them so that they can go forward the way he wants them to go forward. So again, we pose the question, what is our rival's purpose? In broken in provoking us it's to use our desperation and brokenness to bring about destruction so if you'll keep your bookmark there in first Samuel it's not up on the screen but I want us to turn to Matthew chapter 4 this is a passage of scripture that I know we're all very familiar with. Jesus Christ is getting ready to walk out the earthly ministry that God has for him but how many of you know there's a time of trial and testing. How how many of you know that there will be temptation that will come in the midst of walking out what God has for us? And Jesus was no exception. I mean, the Lord and Savior, who is perfect and without uh, any imperfection, still was subjected to this temptation. So we're going to start at verse 1, and I'll just go ahead and read. You can follow along. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down, for it is written, and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. Folks, you and I, as we are walking this road, as we walk during times where it is dry, when we're feeling weary, and we're at the end right before God is about to bring us into our God-given destiny, that is when the enemy will strike, right before God is ready to propel us into the dreams that God has for our lives. And here's the thing, you look at that scripture and we know that Satan was the accuser of the brethren. He was the mocker, he was the scoffer. But we also need to be careful because there are well-intended beings in our lives too that the enemy can work through. We saw that in Peter's life when he said, you should never wash me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. In the same way, there are people that have gathered in my life when I was at the end of my rope who would say, wow, you know, you've really walked this for a long time. You've gone through this. Why don't you come alongside and actually step in this and do this? You deserve it. I'm not saying that God doesn't pour out blessings for obedience. He does. He's a God of tremendous blessing. But we have to be careful because it's in those times that we're weary that we have to be on our guard asking God to give us that wisdom and discernment to see when well-intentioned offers are coming that can derail us from the very purpose that God has for us. So keep looking up as you feel weary. Proverbs fourteen twelve says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. I love what the Apostle Paul has to write in the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21, he points out the acts of the sinful nature He says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. How many times have we looked at that passage of Scripture and the obvious sins, they stand out. The sexual immorality, the hatred, the drunkenness. But selfish ambition is in that list as well. Selfish ambition is self-serving purposes. And so Paul warns us to live like that is to not inherit the kingdom of God. James puts it this way in James chapter 3 as he speaks of two kinds of wisdom. He says, Who is wise in understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Stepping out in self-seeking, stepping out in selfish ambition and envy is nothing more than pride. It's pride. So the enemy's purpose in provoking us is to get us to walk in selfish ambition. It can even have the appearance of looking like something that's good, but if God Himself is not teaching us to go and do this, and speaking that to us, then we're walking in selfish ambition. So we know that Satan, our rival, he has a purpose in provoking us. But here's the beautiful thing is that the sovereign God of the universe is allowing this provoking to take purpose, take its role for a reason. And we need to look at the Lord's purpose in allowing our rivals provoking. So what is the Lord's purpose in allowing our rival, Satan, to provoke us? The first point, the Lord allows it to bring us to a point of total surrender back in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and I'll read verse 8 to you here Elkanah her husband would say to Hannah why are you weeping why don't you eat why are you downhearted don't I mean more to you than ten sons what Hannah's experiencing here is a breaking down she's weeping the provoking has even brought her to a place to eat. Do you know that years of tears will produce brokenness, desperation, and ultimately it gets us to the point where natural appetites will no longer satisfy? The things of this earth, when you were so distressed and so broken in spirit, you start to see the earthly appetites and the things of this world for what they really are. They're broken cisterns. They carry no real water. They can't satisfy us anymore. And that's where Hannah's at right now. And Elkanah, who's probably the closest person to her being her husband, can't see this. He doesn't understand. Ever feel misunderstood? That in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of the desperation of soul, when you feel like your dream has been shattered, because the womb is closed and the thing that God has placed inside of you won't go forward and that weeping starts to take place and you can't even be comforted by the things of this world Hannah knows exactly how that felt pain total pain and so when mere food and more generally the things of this world when they don't comfort us we know we're getting close to come to the end of ourselves so that God can come over and take over and do exactly what he wants to do through us. So we understand that the Lord's purpose in allowing our rivals to provoke us is to bring us to the point of total surrender and to also bring us to the point where natural appetites will no longer satisfy. So once we allow that to soak in our spirit and we start to see that God graciously extends us an invitation to dare to die. And Jesus is the perfect example. So, okay, what does that look like? How do we die? How do we die the same way that Jesus did? Let's turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, and maybe we have that on the screen. I, I don't remember, but we'll turn there anyway. There it is. All right. This is what Jesus, is how he's described. This is what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Be encouraged, church, because here's the thing. The crucifixion was the most brutal of deaths. It was the most humiliating forms of execution. And Jesus was at the lowest of the low. But because he was obedient to his Father, because he was living for the audience of one and not the approval of those around him, he went from that place of death to the resurrection and to be the name above all names. God has dreams that exceed our wildest dreams. And it wasn't for his benefit because he despised the shame of the cross. It was so you and I could be sitting here today talking about him, experiencing his life as we walk with him. Because he died, the name above all names, higher than any power or principality, that's the highest you can be brought. And that's our goal is so that we can rule and reign with Christ, to be with him forever. But it's going to cost us something. I love throughout the scriptures how God uses many stories of agriculture. He uses agricultural pictures to kind of present a spiritual point. And the Lord was really, in the preparation of this, was really bringing some powerful illustrations. And of course, you know the story of the four types of soil in Matthew. The soil represents the heart and the condition of the soil. Basically shows us whether we're in a position to receive the things of God. There are the, the thorny soil. Uh, there's the soil that returns the harvest of a, a 30, 60, or 90 fold. It all depends on the condition of our heart. And Jesus shows us what it means to be in a place where our hearts can really return that harvest. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is his experience right before he's to begin that march to Calvary. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down, and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Gethsemane, it means oil press. And the significance of Gethsemane is is that there was an olive orchard and there was an olive press. Because twice a year during this time, and even before Christ came to the earth, the press was used to extract the oil, from these olives, because there were multiple purposes for oil in the nation of Israel. Okay, The oil was used by the priests in the temple to light the lamps so that they could do what they needed to do inside the temple. Kings and priests and prophets were anointed with this very oil that was extracted from these olives. Okay, And not only that, but oil was a signal. It was a sign of prosperity in the nation of Israel, in which it brought Life to an entire nation. So Jesus now becomes the physical example. He becomes the olive. Now, the thing about the olives that were in this orchard is that the shell was so hard that just simply treading on it with your feet was not enough to crush the outside of the shell. And so, what was used were two large stone boulders that they would take and they would just jack and they would just hammer down on those olives to crush the exterior so that the pureness of that oil could be ex- extracted from the olive. And so we see this in Jesus' life, is that he's a, he is basically falling to his knees. He's experiencing the weight of that stone boulder. He's being crushed. He's in anguish. He sees that if he's going to do the Father's will, that he has to experience a crushing. And if anyone didn't need it, it was him. But again, he was the perfect example for us as we walk through this world. Now, be encouraged, because as we looked at before, Satan has a plan to destroy us in that. But God himself is not out to destroy us. This is a painful but a beautiful picture of how Jesus became that olive for us in the olive orchard. And, of course, we know the rest of the story. He went to Calvary's cross, died a horrific death, but was raised again from the dead. But when he ascended to be with the Father 40 days later, he sent his Holy Spirit to those that were his. And we know in the New Testament that oil is used to signify the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we have this today as we use it to anoint and to pray and to call for the presence of the Holy Spirit to do what he can do, and that's because the olive was crushed more than 2,000 years ago, amen? All right. So Jesus is our example. Another agricultural picture that really relates to all of us is John chapter 12, verses 23 and 24. In fact, The Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus' plea to the Father is the fulfillment of what he spoke earlier in John chapter 12. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many, many seeds. I was doing some research on agriculture and just what it means to sow a seed into the ground. Seeds are tiny. Seeds, like olives, also have an external shell. Not as tough, but it's still a, a solid shell on the outside of the seed. And on the inside of that uh, that seed, there is the multiplication. There's the embryonic life of that particular seed. So there are wheat grains that are within the one single seed, and it is multiplied. There's more of that inside the seed than the one seed that was sown. And what I came to realize is, is that, again, the soil is so important. It has to be tilled. It has to be turned over. It has to be in a condition to receive the rain, the water, that comes from the sky. So that the seeds that are sown underneath, and they're not sown too far underneath, can receive the nutrients from the water that comes down in the soil. And the beautiful thing about this is, is that I didn't know this, that when the water falls and the seed takes part of that water, the shell begins to swell. And as the shell begins to swell, it reaches a point of friction where eventually it breaks off, therefore pushing forward the harvest of that wheat. Do you ever feel that as you are drinking from the streams of living water, from the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you, taking in from the watering of the word, that things all of a sudden are starting to die around you? Circumstances, maybe job door closings, uh, dreams that appeared that you were going to go forward in, they end up closing. And you ask yourself, I don't understand this, God. I'm seeking you. I'm seeking you with all of my heart. You said you'd add everything else on to me. But that's what's so beautiful, is that your shell still needs to swell. Let it swell. God is doing a work. That shell, as long as you continue to take in the rain, as you continue to drink, will swell to the point where you can look back and see that it fell. And when it falls, then you'll begin to see the harvest of what was inside that shell. Thank you, God, for the watering of your word. Wanna, on today's day of testimonies, I just wanted to share a little bit of what uh, God has been doing more specifically uh, over the last year. Of course, last May, uh, my wife Carolyn and I, we found out we were expecting our first child. and uh, at the same time, I've also been praying and asking God for opportunities uh, to be serving, serving in a pastoral role. And uh, we were going through the summer going to the doctor's appointments. And uh, nothing was really kind of uh, seeming like it was opening up for me. I had uh, been serving in leadership through another ministry called Trinity Works. You've probably heard of that. And uh, I really kind of sensed towards the end of uh, this last year, God was telling me to step away uh, because he was preparing my heart to be a father and to connect in bond with my, my, my daughter. And so... We felt like you we know, knew that was the avenue we were getting ready to go. And then in December, out of the blue, I get a call from a church in Kansas City that wanted to interview and potentially bring me on at a very good salary to be a pastor at a church. And, and the Lord just quickly said to me, he says, talk to your wife about it first. For those of you who are married, I, especially the men, I'm talking to the men, how many do you know the Holy Spirit speaks through your wife? Yeah. He certainly did with mine. And as I was praying and asking him what this was all about, the Lord started bringing through my wife the support system that he had brought to her here in Minnesota and the fact she had family and our doctors were in place because this church was basically wanting us to leave and go right away. And, of course, I'm ready to go. I'm thinking, I've waited 10 years for this as I have been walking with you, God. And the Lord said no. And we laid that down. And there was a peace that came when I was able to do that. But after our daughter was born, we had that tremendous joy. And then about three weeks into her new life, my wife and I hit the end of our rope. We weren't sleeping. We were getting maybe an hour or two at night. Our baby was born at eight pounds. She has a voracious appetite. Nothing we gave her satisfied. She would scream and cry throughout the night. And we felt it, us getting worn down. Okay? In one particular night, it was 4.30 in the morning, and I had a long day at work the next day coming, and I wasn't getting any sleep. And my wife, I could see she had just come to the end. She was just upset. And I rose up out of bed, and I said something really loud to my daughter that was derogatory. I got upset. I lost my temper with her. And immediately I felt this sense of brokenness on the inside. And the only thing I could do was muster up the strength to get out of the bed and go downstairs and crawl in a fetal position on the couch. And the Lord said one thing to me. He said, Son, what right do you have? And I'm like, well, I'm like what right I'm like, God, I need sleep. I need sleep if I'm gonna raise this child the way you want me to raise this child. I need sleep if I'm gonna go and to work and provide. God, I need I need. And so the Lord was basically saying to me, then why don't you come to me? In Isaiah chapter 40, verses 29 through 31, and we've quoted this scripture many a times, this is God's promise to those who wait upon him. He will give strength to the weary. He'll increase the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is the promise of God as we wait upon Him. And so that was the song the Lord kept putting in my spirit for the next three mornings after that meltdown and it was amazing because we turned our attention to just to praise him to look up to worship even in the deepest pain in the deepest frustration and it was amazing because I commented to my wife I said I don't understand this I said I got about two and a half hours of sleep last night off and on through it and I feel like I slept 10 hours I'm totally refreshed I'm strengthened I can think clearly at my workplace It was the attitude adjustment that God needed to bring to get me to look up and to praise him and thank him and not look at my blessing as a curse. See, sometimes we don't understand what our blessings are. We go by what the world says. We go by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The same things that Satan tried to intervene in Jesus' brokenness while he was being tempted in the desert. But God saw. He had eyes to see. God, I pray today that we would have eyes to see. Your blessings are not a curse. Our brokenness is not a curse. Satan's a snake. But he is under our feet because we're co-heirs with Christ. And he has promised to give us what we need to trample that snake. is God extends us the invitation to dare to die. Hannah dared to die. Hannah looks up. She looks up. First Samuel, verses 10 and 11. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow, saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever, ever be used on his head. This is the greatest vow a person could ever make during this time. This is the Nazarite vow. In number six, it talks about just the temporary separation for the purposes of God that would sometimes go weeks or months But this is a life commitment she's making here. Even as she weeps, even as she's bitter in soul, she takes the raw emotion of what's inside of her and she never stops looking up. And God can handle your mess. He can handle your raw emotion. He can handle the anger that you have towards him. That's okay. Bring it to him. He knows already what's in our hearts. But the beautiful thing in all of this is look at the attitude of Hannah. She's at a place right now, it's all about you. Regardless of the fact that my husband doesn't understand me, regardless of the fact that my... I don't know what to call her. penina was motivated by a very evil, destructive motivation to crush her when God had given her a dream, she still had the whereabouts to just continue to look up and to pray. And in that time, God was at work. He was shaping and molding a vessel that was going to allow then the plan of God to move forward. As you read on more into that chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 1, what's really beautiful about this is even her steadfastness to keep looking as she kept on praying, verse 12, to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Now, Eli was the high priest of Israel during this time. Now, he had issues of his own. We don't have time to get into that. Wicked sons. I mean, wicked Okay, but even the religious around you won't understand your deepest travails, your deepest pain as you are waiting upon God to fulfill his dreams for your life. So you got family that doesn't understand? Maybe you, you don't even understand, and even the religious are accusing you of being wicked. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. What's interesting here is, is that even as she had committed her desires, had taken her dream for a child and had given that back to the Lord, there was still no guarantee from God that it was going to come to pass the way she thought it was going to. And so the anguish and the bitterness of soul remains. But it was her faith that carried her. It was her faith to continue to go forward and pray to the Lord. The fervency, the scripture tells us that the effectual and fervent prayers of the righteous will availeth much. They'll bring forth God's purpose and his plans. And even if you don't understand, just continue to fervently cry out. I think we have one more slide to finish up the chapter. Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. She said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. And so Hannah's time of testing and trial came to an end in the course of time, and God brought forth his destiny, his dream of this boy named Samuel. Just a couple more things to to touch on here real quick. I just want to read a devotional to you. I don't know uh, how many of you have heard of the devotional book, Streams in the Desert. L. B. Cowman. It's a compilation of letters that were written by missionaries, pastors, just people within the body of Christ who are walking through some really tough and dry spots. But yet God was there to bring water, water to saturate and to refresh. And as I was reading this week, I, I was amazed to see this. Uh, I felt like that this uh, couple of paragraphs here just really uh, capitalizes just on this process of being crushed, experiencing the weight and experiencing the need to drink. And uh, I just thought I would read this to you here. This is what it says. Light is always costly and comes at the expense of that which produces it. An unlit candle does not shine, for burning must come before the light. And we can be of little use to others without a cost to ourselves. Burning suggests suffering, and we try to avoid pain. We tend to feel we are doing the greatest good in the world when we are strong and fit for active duty and when our hearts and hands are busy with kind acts of service. Therefore, when we are set aside to suffer, when we are sick, when we are consumed with pain, and when all our activities have been stopped, we feel we are no longer of any use and are accomplishing nothing. Yet, if we will be patient and submissive, It is almost certain we will be a greater blessing to the world around us during our time of suffering and pain than when we were when we thought we were doing our greatest work. Then we are burning and shining brightly as a result of the fire. The glory of tomorrow is rooted in the drudgery of today. Many people want the glory without the cross and the shining light without the burning fire but crucifixion comes before coronation. The crucifixion that Hannah was experiencing at the provokings and the irritations of her rival produced the coronation of Samuel. (laughs) What the enemy means for evil, God turns around for good. That's 50-20 vision right there. And so the last point, and I'll end... On a couple scriptures here, is that there are blessings in daring to die. There are tremendous blessings. In John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, you can turn there if you'd like, otherwise I can just go ahead and read this to you. This is what Jesus cries out. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. The streams of living water is the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. And the beautiful thing is is that we know the Holy Spirit comes to comfort us. He guides us. He counsels us. He teaches us. This is good news. I mean, there is an unending supply of communication that God wants to do through the power of his Holy Spirit to bring us through anything. The scriptures say that he'll never leave us nor forsake us. If we will first seek the kingdom of God and all of his righteousness, he has a plan to add everything else unto us. The story does not end with the provokings and the irritations. Satan would like you to believe that, but that's not the truth. So, Through that we see that God is our helper. Secondly, God's dreams reach beyond our wildest dreams. If you remember Samuel, Samuel was raised up as one of the greatest and most influential prophets of Israel, okay? Who anointed the first two kings of Israel, including King David, who the scriptures say was a man after God's own heart, in which the throne of righteousness was was totally put there in Jerusalem, which was called the city of David, Which then, that line ushered in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Samuel, the boy that Hannah went through all sorts of trouble through, is reaching out into thousands of generations later, and Hannah is going to receive her due reward as she stands before God because she chose not to give in to the voice of the rival, to not give in to the provoking in the irritations that were set up to come and to destroy her. And then, of course, there's Peninnah, who we didn't even have the pleasure of knowing the names of her children. And in fact, she's not even mentioned outside of 1 Samuel chapter 1, as far as I could see. Not only that, but Samuel is also mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith in which the writer of Hebrews says we don't even have time to mention Samson or Samuel or Jephthah. But he made it in that hall of faith. And we can look back to Hannah for that. And finally, dying is the medicine that kills the disease of worldliness. 1 John, and this is the last scripture, verses 15 through 17, do not love the world or anything in the world, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. There we go again, that lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does. That is Satan's M.O., to bring about your destruction, to get you to walk in selfish ambition, to do the things that this world says is right, and yet God, in the call of death, is wanting to promote his dream that will reach so much further above and beyond what we could have ever imagined. Today, there might be some of you who have just made it a point to just walk according to what seems right to you. Perhaps you've never surrendered your life completely to Jesus Christ. Perhaps you've never repented of your sins and you are still walking in your own ways. We don't have to look very far back then to see just the trail of destruction that's been left because we've done things our own way. We we can't see five feet in front of us. Today is your day. Today is the day of salvation. Today you have seen the plans of Satan which look good on the surface. They appeal to our fleshly desires. But you see as we've gone through the scope of destruction he seeks to bring. He's not your friend. The devil hates you. And he hates you because of the obedience of God. And I can promise you That if you choose today to surrender, He'll hate you and try to destroy you. But be encouraged. Take that step of faith today. Because God has a plan and He has given us everything we need to fulfill that plan. That's His Son. When He was crushed as an olive, it was for the precious nature of bringing forth The Holy Spirit in giving that to us as a gift who will strengthen us to do what he's called us to do. So we're going to open these altars here this morning, and we just want to invite you to surrender to Jesus. I mean, I look at what I'm having to give up. The Lord is really putting it on my heart to give up even my job now to stay at home. Mathematically, financially, we're taking a big hit. But the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, is priceless. Christ is your friend when we live surrender to him and in repentance. And he will take care of you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And then there are folks here today who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ. And they've experienced a shattering of a dream. They maybe even have experienced the loss of a life. And the Lord wants you to know today that he has not forgotten about you. He loves you. He sees the hurt and the raw emotion that is there. And He's not afraid of it. He wants you to bring it forth. And He will walk with you. And He has dreams and plans for you that will exceed your expectations, your wildest dreams. God wants to move through you. He loves you. He wants to be there to bring healing. And He wants to do what He wants to do through your life. And so I want to encourage you today too to come forward and to receive that healing touch and to begin walking with Him again. So we'll just go ahead and worship now.
0: I don't know about you, but that word just resonated deep in my spirit today. There's one thing I've discovered in all of these years of life and ministry. Is that the answer to every question is surrender. And the invitation is always to just die more deeply that his life might come in more fully. We're just going to keep this altar area open if you want to come. If there's something you want to present and bring to the Lord this morning, come and do that. We're just going to continue to worship here. I'm going to pray a prayer benediction to release us, but I will ask that you'll hold your visiting until we're out and the ushers to keep the doors closed so that we can keep this as a a place of, of just communing with the Lord this morning. So don't rush if you need to come. Come. If you just open your hands, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken to us today, even as you so faithfully do over and over. Lord, we choose to receive Your Word today with glad hearts. We choose to submit, to surrender, to die to You, that You might live in us. Jesus. And now may You be filled afresh today with the immeasurable love of God the Father. May the irresistible mercy and grace of Jesus Christ, His precious Son, fill your heart. May you be flooded with the inexhaustible strength, power, comfort, and hope of the Holy Spirit. As you go from this house to your house, may you go with the banner of His favor upon and over your life. Until we gather again, either in this house or in our eternal home. I bless you, people of God. Go in the goodness and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.